G'day and welcome to the Dolby Anglican Podcast. My name is David Brown and I'm one of the ministers at Dolby Anglican Parish. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit anglicandolby.org.au. Today's sermon is the third in a sermon series called Everyday Saints. And today we're looking at Joshua chapter 24 and the life of Francis of Assisi. Enjoy the sermon. First reading this morning is from Joshua 24, 1-3a and 14-25. to When Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem, he summons the elders, leaders, judges and officials of Israel. They presented him themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your ancestors, including the terror, the father of Abraham and Nabal, lived beyond the river Euphrates and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac. Now, the, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the river Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But in serving the Lord, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorite, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, you will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it for us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us at our enti- for our entire journey and among all the nations through which we travelled. And the Lord drove us out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord, because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day Joshua made a covenant with the people. There at Shechem he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. Hear the word of the Lord. Well, I'm really enjoying this Everyday Saints series, looking at the lives of the different saints. And today we've come to the life of Francis of Assisi. you may, may, some people have commented on my, my stole today. I couldn't find my normal green stole, uh, but today I've got a really colourful one to celebrate 
Francis of Assisi, who is a very colourful character indeed. But as I begin to preach, please pray for me as I pray for you. Loving Lord God, we thank you for your word to us today and we pray that you would help us to follow the example of Joshua and of Francis and to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Well, a good sermon will often start with a hook, uh, something to get you thinking, and then it will try and explain the text, uh, and then it will apply the text. Today will not be a good sermon, because I'm going to be starting with my application. The application for today's sermon is very clear, and it's very explicit in the text. Joshua, a man of war and deep faith, gathers and unites his people in our Old Testament reading for the first and probably for the last time and gives the people an ultimatum. Joshua 24, 14 says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And so the application for us today is the same as it was for the people of Israel that day. Do we choose to serve God or do we go elsewhere? Today we stand on the cusp of a new period in history. Oh, gee. <laughs> we stand on the cusp of a new period in history. The world is slowly emerging from the grips of lockdown and pandemic. Our world's biggest superpower most likely has a new leader. I think it was announced this morning that Joe Biden is the new president of the United States. Um, watch this space. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, uh, and Queensland and the Wallabies are now winning at rugby again. So <laughs> it's something, something new is happening. Just like the people in Joshua 24, we're on the cusp of a new chapter in the life of our church. The question is, will we flake and give up? Or will we say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? While we have the advantage of knowing how Joshua responds, we need to unpack the how and why of how he does this so we can really experience this application for ourselves. So first, let's look at Joshua and the people. The passage we're looking at today is one of the high points in the Bible. Joshua was one of two people who trusted God enough to take the Holy Land. And he does just this throughout the book of Joshua. The people finally seem to have all the things that God had promised to their forefather Abraham. They have the land that God promised. Abraham's family has grown to over a million people. And finally, they seem poised, ready to be a blessing to one another, to bless God and to bless the whole world by being an example of how good it is when people live in harmony with God. 
So Joshua calls all the people together at Shechem, and miracle upon miracles, they all come. Now this place that God chooses is a convenient location because it's right in the middle of the land that God had promised. Shechem. But Shechem is also loaded with spiritual significance. In Genesis, God meets with Abraham under a tree at Shechem. And it's there that God makes promises to Abraham, these promises, this threefold problem, 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 promise of land, family, and blessings. And it's under this tree that Abraham builds an altar to God and worships God for the first time. So it's here that God calls all of Abraham's descendants to renew their promises. Will they decide to follow Abraham's God or will they give him the flick? Now history nuts are keen to point out the whole chapter reads like an ancient covenant between a king and his subjects. What would happen is a king would conquer a people and then he would cut a deal. He would literally etch into tablets the terms and conditions of their relationship. He would protect and rule over the people if they agreed to work his fields, send their kids to fight in his wars, and let the king take what he wanted from them. Now Joshua could have done the same thing making his sons kings. He could have started a new dynasty. Here's the birth of a new nation. But instead, he turns the thoughts of the hearts of the people back to God. Now Joshua reminds the people of how faithful their God is and how faithful God has been to them again and again. God not only called their ancestors from following false gods from across the river, But he saves them from slavery. He saves them from destruction when the mightiest superpower in the world, Egypt, were bearing down on them. When someone tried to curse them, he reversed the curses upon their enemies. And then God plops a whole country into their laps. Joshua is reminding the people of all that God has done for them. But he's also reminding them of their forgetful hearts. And how they've turned their backs on God before. They've resisted change. They've been on the cusp of something new before. And they have gone back to the old. This is when Joshua presents God's ultimatum. Choose today whom you will serve. Now this is a paradigm shift on the old king covenant deal. Because kings didn't usually give their subjects a choice. A king would conquer, set his terms, and the people had no choice but to agree to them. Here the God of the universe, the God who made all things bright and beautiful, is saying, I value your feedback. Do you think I've been a good God to you? Or would you rather bow down to things that hurt you? Commentators point out that the details of this covenant reveal something about ourselves and about the God who is making this covenant. Trent Butler says it like this. Oh, gee. Salvation history can in no way be connected 
to God's reward for the behavior of his people. God chose to act in his own freedom in hope that the people he delivered from slavery would respond in that same freedom and choose to serve him. The future of the people is on a knife edge. God knows he's best for us, but wants us to choose him. He's a God of freedom, not of oppression. This, friends, is real love. God isn't forcing his will on us. He's respecting ours, something even the kings of this world have little time for. And so the people enthusiastically shout, We will serve the Lord! He is our God! But Joshua does something crazy, and he seems to try to talk them out of him. In verse 19, he says, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. While the Lord cares about our feelings and he's been good to us, Joshua warns us that we shouldn't make this decision lightly. There are eternal life and death consequences for keeping and breaking this covenant. He knows that when he first, Joshua knows that when he first tried to lead the people into the promised land, they got spooked. And so they walked around the desert for 40 years until a generation died out and until they were ready to have another crack. Joshua wants to make absolutely sure that people know the terms and conditions of what they're signing up for. But again, they boldly shout in verse 20, 21, No, we will save the Lord! And so the people commit. It's an awesome moment. Butler again writes, Joshua forces Israel to understand the difference between their concept of gods and the real God. He is holy. He is a jealous God who expects his people to be satisfied with nothing less than perfection. He can't be bribed. He won't wait around while Israel flirts with other gods. More than anything else, He is the God who loves so much that he seeks the same wholehearted devotion in return. People are incapable of such total devotion, but this is no excuse. God's people are called to demand such devotion of themselves and to be satisfied with nothing less. End quote. That was a pretty long quote. Uh, Reverend Ian, when he came last week, he had a long quote, so I thought I'd respond. (laughs) God isn't interested in half-hearted devotion. God is all in, and now he's encouraging the people to commit. And it seems like the people are finally prepared to commit with wholehearted devotion. Things are changing. Something new is happening. A nation is being born. And 
If you're anything like me, you're cheering along with Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But if you know the book of Judges, you'll know that it's a high point here. And things go from bad to worse. The book of Judges tells the sad story almost in the very next few chapters of how Israel slowly implodes. Israel is on the cusp of something new and wonderful, but they turn a blessing into a curse. Fast forward 2,500 years, and the people of God are again on the cusp of something new. This time, they're at a low point, though. The Catholic Church in Italy in the 13th century was in decline and had lost its moral authority. The Crusades were in full swing and church corruption was rife. Maybe some leaders might have said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But most of them were more interested in serving themselves. Enter a crazy monk called Francis, who was poised to give the church a shake-up. Francis was the son of a rich merchant, and he used Daddy's army to become a fashionable knight, complete with flashy armour. Unfortunately, when he rode into battle, his fancy armour wasn't much chop, and he was taken captive. And his flashy armour was a dead giveaway that this boy was worth a little bit of a ransom. And so after a year of negotiating with his father, his captors released him. Francis tried to go back to living a carefree, cavalier life, but he was traumatised, and that trauma changed him. One day, he saw a leper, and lepers had disgusted him, and he always kept a wide berth. But when he looked at the leper again, all he saw was the face of Jesus Christ. And so he went up to the leper with all his open sores and took his hands in his own and he kissed his hands. And then he turned over his hands to his palms and put everything Francis had in this leper's hands. Later, Francis found a rundown church And as he was praying, he saw an icon of Jesus, and the icon of Jesus spoke to him and said, Francis, Francis, go and repair my house, which, as you can see, is falling down. Francis took this literally and began to slowly rebuild the little church, and others joined him. Now, I love this story because it shows how Francis took the way of Jesus literally. But as he literally followed Jesus, spiritual realities began to change. Francis built the church physically, but he also did it metaphorically and spiritually. This was Francis's as for me and my house moment, and he took it with both hands. Now, Francis continued giving his money to the poor, but this upset his dad. So his dad um, 
started to get very angry and Francis went and hid in a cave. When he returned home, his father beat him and then dragged him before the courts in the local cathedral and tried to get him to renounce his inheritance, his birthright, to make up for all the money that Francis had given away. At this point, Francis publicly confessed that he was wrong to have given away his father's money and he apologised. But then he did something incredible. He took off his clothes, leaving himself stark naked, and said to his father, Father, up to this day I have called you father. But on this day I only have one father, and I can sincerely pray, Our Father who art in heaven. Thankfully, the local bishop gave him his cloak. But from that point on, Francis was single-minded in his service to God. He walked out of the cathedral where he was being tried and gave his life fully to Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount was Francis' playbook. And one day when he was sitting in church, he he heard Jesus saying in the Gospel of Matthew, "'Take no gold or silver or copper in your wallet.'" No bag for your journey, nor two tunics or sandals or staff. Francis took this command literally and went around as an itinerant preacher, living simply but joyfully. At the time, services were delivered in Latin, but Francis would go outside the churches and he would preach to people in a language they would understand. At times, church leadership said, well, you can't preach to people. You're not educated. You're not a priest. So go and preach to the pigs. And that's exactly what Francis did. And when he, when he came back to the leaders that told him to preach to the pigs, he said, well, I've preached to the pigs. I've told them that they're made, in, they're, they're made for God's glory and, and they have a creator and they point people to God. What do I do now? And he just left the church leadership stumped. But Francis was no pushover, and he was dead serious about sin. One biographer wrote that he denounced evil wherever he found it and made no effort to palliate sin. For him, a life of sin was met with outspoken rebuke, not with support. Francis fasted regularly. And in winter, if he found that he had lustful thoughts, he would throw himself in the snow until those thoughts went away. He was serious. And while Francis is famous for preaching to birds and animals, this was because he saw the hand of God in creation. He didn't worship creation. He wasn't a pantheist. He didn't see God in all things. Instead, he saw how creation pointed back to a creator. And he encouraged others to give glory and praise to him. Francis wanted everyone to know Jesus, and he slowly gathered a band of 12 followers. He gave them a rule of life which came straight out of the Bible. One day, a young woman named Claire heard Francis preach and decided that she wanted to follow Jesus like St. Francis. So she went down to the monastery where Francis was staying, And Francis saw her glamorous clothes and he gave her a monk's habit and then cut off all her hair 
And then eventually in time, after living with the monks, he found Claire a place to stay with other nuns. Through Claire, the movement grew to include women. Francis was also passionate about telling people of other faiths about Jesus. His traveling preaching took him to Egypt, where crusaders had besieged a Muslim city. Francis and a friend asked the crusaders why they weren't preaching to them about Jesus, and the crusaders just sniggered. And so he, with another friend, started dancing and singing hymns, and they walked up to the besieged city. And all the archers on the walls and the people with the hot oil, they were like, what's going on? And they were so weirded out by what Francis was doing that they opened the gates to the city and let Francis in. And then they gave him an audience with the sultan. Francis told the sultan about Jesus, about his life, about his death and resurrection. And the sultan was so stunned by the integrity of Francis' faith that he allowed him to pray for him and then let Francis go unharmed. Sadly, Francis's harsh lifestyle of fasting, travel, and spending hours in the sun caught up with him, and his eyesight and his health failed. Towards the end of his life, whilst on a mountaintop retreat, Francis received scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side, scars that reminded him of Jesus. Francis died in 1226 at only 44 years old. But the movement God began through him continued to reform and revive the church up to this very present day. In his life and in his death, Francis shows us what happens when we truly say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Good to see some some nods there. And so friends, it doesn't matter if our nation is on a high point or on a low point. It doesn't matter if everyone's following God or if you're the only person in the church. The story of Joshua, the story of Francis, show us that when we say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, God can do amazing things. And so friends, as we stand on the cusp of something new, with 2020 running out and on the brink of a new chapter in history, do we embrace change? Or do we turn our backs on it? Do we embrace God or follow our own needs and desires? These two examples of godly people serving the Lord, standing up and committing to God show us that serving the Lord is terrifying. But it's also the most courageous and satisfying commitment you will ever make. Choose today whom you will serve, friends. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.